Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is podcast number 171. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Matthew Taylor. He's a physical therapist, yoga therapist, author, PhD, and we talk about fostering creativity and rehabilitation. What does this mean? How do we do it? How does it coincide with the APTA's vision statement, which is transforming society by optimizing movement to improve the human experience? So how do we do that? In this episode, Matt and I talk about not only transforming society, but maybe first work on transforming yourself, work on transforming the profession of physical therapy in order to achieve that vision of transforming society. How do we do it? How does it work? Matt goes through some great exercises on how to become creative, how to foster compassion, creativity, empathy. We go through six specific steps on how you can do that. This is all, it's all in the podcast here. And it's, it was such a great learning experience and so great to listen to him because he's so passionate about what he does and he might have the best radio voice ever. Like I am talking James Earl Jones kind of a voice. It's really fantastic. Um, and we also talk, we throw out a lot of different references and things like that. So um, if you want to get those references, go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, sign up for the newsletter the newsletter will be going out on September 15th. So if you're getting this on the 14th, the day that this podcast comes out, sign up for the newsletter. You get a lot of extra bonus materials in there, a lot of links to what we talk about in the podcast, not only this podcast, but in all my podcasts. So be sure to sign up for that newsletter at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And that way you won't miss out on all the great links that we're talking about here. And, and if you miss the links, you can always email me. And again, you can email me through the podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Um, now, getting to the community board, the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart community board. This week, I wanted to uh, talk about two new podcasts that are out. One is called the PT Pintcast, and you can find out more information about that at ptpintcast.com. This is a physical therapy student-run podcast with the voice of Jimmy McKay. He is actually a former DJ, so again, awesome radio voice. And if I can be so bold as to plug myself, um, I'm actually in episode six talking about physical therapy and pain science and how important it is. So go to ptpintcast.com. Sign up for their, their pint casts. Uh, they're really fun and uh, a great listen. And the other podcast I wanted to highlight is called The Physio Detective and the Physio Down There with Anthony Lowe and Lori Forner. And this is all about uh, pelvic health, pelvic physical therapy, women's health stuff. So if you're interested in that, then definitely check out the, the Physio Detective and the Physio Down There Podcast, and you can find that at Lori Forner, L O R I F O R N E R.com. So, those are two really good podcasts. So, um, if you're into listening to podcasts, which hopefully you are, you're listening to this one, check those two out. And uh, now, let's get to today's episode with Dr. Matthew Taylor.
Thanks for tuning in. This is the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today I'm joined by Dr. Matthew J. Taylor. He has advocated adopting the biopsychosocial approach to physical therapy as the foundation to trans- transformational learning and development since 1997. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know how much we talk about the biopsychosocial approach. His doctorate in individual and organizational transformative change drove his research into the power of, phys- of the physical therapy scope of practice using posture, movement, breathing, and awareness to affect change in modern society. He is also an author and has penned several chapters of the textbook Fostering Creativity and Rehabilitation, and he will be at the Combined Sections meeting in 2016 in Anaheim, California for physical therapists, and he is having a full-day pre-conference course, Transforming Society Through Embodied Creativity, and if so if you're going to CSM, definitely think about checking out this pre-conference course, and you're probably wondering, what does that mean, Transforming Society Through Embodied Creativity, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about what that means. So, Matthew, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be here. Okay. So, first, before we get to all of uh, this transforming society through embodied creativity, um, what I'd like to know is a little bit more about your journey to get you here. So, you, when did you start PT school? Why, and actually, I ask this question a lot to PTs. Why did you decide to become a physical therapist? Let's start with that. <laughs> Okay, that's an easy one. It was by subtraction. <laughs> Started off pre-med, did that for a couple of years, decided I didn't want to go through the slog of however many years for all those uh, different reasons. Went to engineering, that was boring. Thought about dentistry, that was, that sounded really boring once I got into it. And then uh, by subtraction was, well, engineering, medicine, Who's, who does that? Oh, physical therapists do that. And so that's what I mean by, so I never kind of woke up and went, I've got to be a physical therapist. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a pathway that way. So um, luck would have it back in, this is the old days. Uh, I started PT school in 1980. Okay. And at that time, there were two master's degree programs, Duke and uh, the Army Baylor program. And I got into the Army Baylor program, so spent my first eight years of my career as an Army physical therapist. Oh, cool. Yeah, and those were, those were those heady times when some crazy New Zealander called Stanley Paris was talking about moving cervical spines and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. beginning of a career, very heavy orthopedic manual therapy. Joe Godges was my classmate. Tim Flynn was the year behind me. We, we had a pretty good run there from so, you know, a lot of a lot of good Baylor people out there leading the way right now. So um, had a nice foundation that way in that orthopedic sports medicine. But I, one of the things you find out in the Army is you also get additional jobs. And I had two additional jobs. One was a post-fitness facilitator. So went to Ken Cooper's Aerobics Institute and got special training. That was, you know, when the... Nike had started and all that stuff. And uh, so kind of got that fitness blend rather than just the pathology blend of PT. Mm-hmm. And I was also designated as a burn specialist. So I spent Ooh, extra time. Tough. Yeah, spent extra time down at the Army's burn center. And, and that kind of kind of set me up for, okay, we got all this wellness. 
and you got all these people that are in this catastrophic state because you know, those are the 80, 90 percenters down there as far as burn coverage. Is that right? You know, yeah. And so what's the human spirit that gets, that makes life worth living for those mm -hmm. people? So, mm -hmm. so it was a good foundation. Uh, from there, went up to Galena, Illinois, Northwest Illinois, a little town of 3,500 people. Whoa. Where, where, yeah. is the, where is that now? The northwest corner of Illinois, two hours out of Chicago's playground. Okay, okay. It's the only, only part of Illinois that didn't get glaciated, so it's got hills and trees and stuff like that. Okay. But, uh, um, so anyway, there started out as a little contract therapist for somebody uh, at a you know in this town of thirty five hundred community hospital, and took that and over the next several years built it into a. A 4,500 square foot clinic with a medically oriented gym and 17 staff members. And yeah, we used to call it the bumblebee, the little thing that's flying that shouldn't because mm -hmm. you shouldn't have that big a facility in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I had a lot of fun doing the sports fitness and all that sort of stuff. But uh, in the midst of having all that fun and raising a family and being an active, you know, kind of 3,500, you, you're also the the mayor, the, sure, sure. <laughs> um, uh, my back kept getting worse and I was this back specialist cause I went to everybody's, I was doing, you know, American back school, the Maitland, the mm -hmm. uh, name it, I've been there. Um, but my back kept getting worse. And so in the mid 1990s, 1996, uh, the health club industry show, they said yoga is going to get hot. And so, okay, we'll find a yoga teacher out here in the middle of nowhere. And we, we found one. He came over uh, two months after going to his one-time-a-week class with him, not doing anything specific to me. My back was getting better. And it was like, oh, crap, what I miss? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was one of those times in life where it's like, okay, better change this. And, and uh, came home, told my wife that uh, this is pretty cool stuff. I'm going to get into it. And... I did, did a lot of yoga therapy training. Uh, as the pattern comes across in the interview, I kind of never do things a little bit. <laughs> it's Started all or writing. nothing? Yeah, it's uh -huh. all or nothing. So uh, take a whole bunch of training, start writing articles, uh, get on the advisory board, get on the board of directors. Be the <laughs> um, So kind of went way into the, the yoga work at, at the same time managing my staff back, back at the clinic. And then from there, thought, well, if I'm doing all this work, let me go get a doctorate, get a terminal degree, do something with it. Mm -hmm. And so my, as you read in the intro, my doctorate was uh, in transformational learning and change. So that, you know, not how do we transfer data, but how do we help people shift worldviews, uh, paradigms, that kind of thing. Um, and then that that led us to moving down here to the desert. And that's where I opened my clinic where it's... Uh, just a little yoga th studio space with no equipment and four private treatment rooms with blocks, blankets, and straps. And so we do what we call empty room therapy. Uh, but through all that, of course, was the evolution and rehab of this thing people kept talking about, the biopsychosocial approach. And uh, what I had learned when I started doing the, the yoga therapy was, uh, and yoga therapy be different than your studio acrobatics bouncing yeah, around. Yeah, what is but, what uh, is the difference? Because I was actually interviewed Neil Pearson, and sure. he's also a physical therapist and does yoga therapy. And someone had actually asked me, I don't know, somewhere on social media, 
what's, what is, if you're a physical therapist or what is yoga therapy? Like, I think this person was a yoga instructor, but they didn't have like quote unquote yoga therapy. So can you explain what yoga therapy is? Yeah, because um, I'm the guy that helped write the definition for the association. Perfect. (laughs) We're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. This is great. I sat there and wordsmithed every one of those words. So yeah, all right. I should be able to tell you. Then then define that for us. (laughs) So uh, yoga therapy is the process of empowering people towards wellness and health through the application of theory and practice of yoga. So the key words there is it's a process, it's not uh-huh. an event. Okay. It's empowering, it doesn't take the person's power away, it doesn't make them dependent on the system. And um, it's not just the practice, it's just not asana. It's also, so the theory, so what is the theory? And the theory of yoga is the original biopsychosocial theory because it says that uh, guess what? Human beings are made up of a physical aspect, an energetic, bioenergetic, mental, higher mind, and spiritual. And they started writing about this in the Tiyatri uh, Upanishads 4,300 years ago. So we're all excited about BPS and physical therapy, and the yogis are going, oh, yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> Got news. that, know that. Yeah. So it was kind of fun to find that. And uh, so yoga therapy differs in that it's, one, you're, you are in a therapeutic relationship versus just a fitness instructional okay. um, relationship. So there's a host of additional responsibilities that, uh, say, a yoga teacher would not only need to know how to teach asana or postures, but they'd also have to they'd want to have, should have the the clinical background, so to speak, of, you know, what are the contraindications, what are, how do I interact, interface with the person and their healthcare team, and so there's a, it's a much broader application of yoga, and, and specifically the yoga therapy, the yoga philosophy part, which is, we're made up of these, these five aspects so, so you know, we always talk about biopsychosocial. At least now we're talking about psych and social, but we still got to add the last S, which is the spiritual part. And then uh, that was fun because in my doctorate, we uh, taken a look at that. Of course, Duke has a lot of, uh, and there are several other validated uh, scales for measuring spirituality. So we don't have to be afraid of it. It's not crystals and incense kind of stuff. So I tell people, I just call it a story rather than spirituality because that's that's really that, you know, when we talk about like at the pain, you know, you and I met at the pain summit in San Diego last year, um, you know, when we're talking about the person asking the questions, um, so out of Duke, they say it's who am I, what am I, and then how should I move or be in the world? And so that's that third one, that action, that movement is, of course, us as physical therapists. We, we are the doctors of. So um, so I think we can be OK with saying spiritual and not get all freaked out about it. If we if we remember that it's it, it's that basic patient narrative that we want to to help the person reauthor, reedit. And, um, so that's that's kind of kind of in that process then my dissertation chair is Alfonso Montori um, PhD that's one of the leaders in social creativity in the world and uh, so he asks a lot of questions about what is creativity and he's uh, he was very informative for 
for my development in that uh, he pretty much deconstructed everything I knew about creativity <laughs> because in the West we have kind of a, uh, a parochial, very narrow view of creativity that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily share. And so that, that, that intrigued me. And I want to get to that in a second, but just going back to the yoga therapy part, if you're a yoga teacher, do you need additional training to say that you do yoga therapy? Or can yeah. it just be any yoga teacher can just slap it on their business card and say, I do yoga therapy? Sure. Right now, um, anybody can do it. Uh, part of what I started back in 08 and 09 when I was president of the board of directors of the International Association of Yoga Therapists was uh, an accreditation and um, standards practice. So we've got now we've got all the standards set. So this is part of that creativity. You know, can you go out and create a new profession? Mm -hmm. I, I like to call it the the first new health profession of the 21st century. Um, so we had this first. We had to define it. <laughs> then we had to start. We had to write standards for the schools, which has been done, mm -hmm. and we're accrediting schools now, and we're finishing the accreditation process for individuals, and that'll begin late 15, early 16, and then at that point, um, you'll need to have met those criteria in order to be able to call yourself a, a registered yoga therapist. What we're trying to do is fly the middle way, um, rather than get into a big state bureaucratic process, be a self-regulated mm -hmm. profession, uh, and so far so good, and we've got a lot of bright people guiding that process to uh, make sure that we're, we're being competent and uh, got enough you know, reflective processes in there that, that we can self-police to a degree. So that, Cool. That, Very cool. Okay, now, thank you for that. Let's get back to creativity. So how does our de the Western definition or our definition of creativity differ from that of other parts of the world? So I know when I think creativity, you think, I think people may think artist or, you know, musician, somebody who works in a creative field, you know, and a lot of times I think, I mean, I think that physical therapy is a creative field, but I don't think that a lot of other people think that. I think that the world of medicine, people don't think that creativity is part of that world. Right. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that, but I, that's what I think. Right. So, yeah. so let's talk about this idea of creativity. So first, how do how do what we define creativity? How does that differ from the rest of the world? And then we'll talk about transforming society through embodied creativity and what the heck that means anyway. So right. let's let's start with what is the difference between our part of the world and other parts of the world? Sure. So um, our part of the world comes then through our Western lens, which is the lens of the individual rather than the collective. Um, and that was part of Alfonso's background. He was in a a small but popular British band in the 70s. And so he, he grew up amongst and within that whole creative surge. What was the name so of the band? The Renapeds. Renapeds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll Google and that. <laughs> that's right. He's, he's got a lot. Of, so he's a saxophonist and he's okay. married to Kitty Margolis, who's a Grammy Award winning jazz singer. Okay. Um, so he, he is, his interest came from, well, what's, 
the creativity of a band isn't that of an individual, but it's a, of a collective, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the lens we wear in the West is kind of the rugged individualist. You know, if I'm going to do this, I got to figure it out. And, and so consequently, our model is that of the lone genius, you know, Steve Jobs meditating on a rock, coming up with the iPhone kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but in much of the rest of the world, there's there's a broader sense that, no, it's, it's much more context sensitive. So uh, no one creates in isolation, that we're always influenced by somebody. So if you look at like Steve Jobs and his uh, Buddhist training, his engineering training, uh, it, and, and timing, you know, so we got to be context sensitive to timing. It was at the right place where, you know, uh, Microsoft had actually came up with a, you know, a graphic user interface, but didn't know what to do with it. And IBM had the software and they didn't know what to do, you know. And so if those things hadn't been there, Steve Jobs wouldn't be Steve Jobs. You know, it wasn't like he just sat there. And so everything's context sensitive. And, and so, um, the key is to be able to look at that complexity of context and and know that all of those things enrich the possibility for some sort of adaptation. And I guess from a rehab standpoint, that's if we think of creativity more as just that basic function of life to be able to respond to our environment, to adapt to our environment, right? And that's what we're doing with our patient. You know, they come in with this horrible pain thing or catastrophic diagnosis or whatever, you know. How are you going to adapt now? Because uh, we're going to we're going to have responses or movements in our in our life, but if it isn't uh, if it isn't going to support the the individual or get them to their goals, then they're creating something. We're always creating, so it's not not a compartmentalized part mm-hmm. of our lives. It's just mm-hmm. it's how we're adapting to the environment moment to moment, and uh, and so. Rather than that picture of the lone genius doing it by themselves, and then, of course, creativity has the same problem PT has, is we're coming out of the biomedical model where we have this straight linear thinking kind of thing, right? Um, Well, creativity is, well, okay, I'm going to get creative. I'm going to, you know, do this step. We call it the creativity muscle. Can you flex your creativity muscle? And uh the answer is no, <laughs> from what the research says. Whoa. You can't. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I want to get buff in creativity. You right. know, it's I like get I get better. Yeah. So it's being creative. So it's, yeah. So um, what it turns out is that, that you can do things to prime or make yourself more adaptable. And out of that, you may have a broader range or creative responses. And uh, that's really the key is, uh, and again, that's what we're looking for in our patients. They come in with some stucker, uh, maladaptive pattern that they're in. And then how do we, how do we create an environment where they can start to adapt and, and change differently and, and try other options to see if it gets them towards their, their goal? So, so it sounds like creativity, so it's not something that we can flex, you said, or sort of improve upon, but it, creativity in the sense of physical therapy is dependent on contacts and environment? Is that? Right. It, it's, it's dependent on that. And so, you know, so again, go back to the, since 
the people are pretty comfortable with the, the new pain model. You know, how do I, how do I understand? Some people are comfortable some. with the new pain. That's, that's a big leap. <laughs> I think some people are, are, you were an early adapter or a doctor yeah. back in 1997 of this yeah. biopsychosocial. Uh, I think it's getting better. You know, Lorimer and David will say that more people are certainly jumping on board, but right. certainly better than it was in 1997. Right. Uh, but a lot of people it are not. Right. They just cannot break free from the the biomedical model, but because because they're not creative because oh, if I knew I was going to be quizzed, I wouldn't be doing this at eight o'clock <laughs> no, in the morning. No, no, but, this is, <laughs> no, but, but these are great because this should be the questions our listeners are asking right. too, right? Why? Because, you know, um, and so the because is in order for, and so this is fun because now we get to jump into neuroplastics, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because the state of our central nervous system is either going to let us be in a state of ease or distress, right? Fight or flight, sympathetic, sure. parasympathetic. And if your nervous system hasn't been trained and developed and literally anatomically, uh, physiologically got the resilience to be uncomfortable when your worldview is being challenged, i.e., Oh crap! You mean I can't just rub them and make them better? You know, or as David would say, hit them with a wet salmon. You know, <laughs> I would like to see that happen. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, but uh, so what happens is, in order to have your worldview confronted, you have to have a, a nervous system that can take in the stimulus that oh, everything I've learned and studied so far is being challenged. Can I actually look at it and consider it, or am I, do I need to shut down and, and close it off? It's like, yeah, that's fancy Whatever. talk, but Is that I've got my stuff. Cognitive dissonance? Well, you, you, there'll be a cognitive dissonance, but there's an, and so here's our bridge into that embodied part of the creativity. Mm-hmm. If your um, ability for your dorsal prefrontal cortex, you know how. Lorimer riffs into, oh, now I'm the parietal cortex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. yeah right. Having okay. people stand up and, <laughs> yeah, show, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so if, if that, if that rational, logical part goes, well, all these smart people are saying this, but the limbic system says, oh, crap, I'll have to change everything. No do, way. Do. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's, a, so it's literally a, a conversation in us. And, um, what the literature says is if you've got a thin, you know, frayed, extension cord between your limbic system and your prefrontal cortex, which is your insula, um, you're not going to be able to make that change because you're going to keep shutting down and just do what's comfortable and do what's safe. You're the the scared bunny under the bush with a coyote walking by. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to have the anatomy to be able to sit with that dissonance and then step up and say, uh, yes, I'm going to be able to change. And so... So that is, so not only is there this, of course, we still have that mental, physical divide, right? So I have to have the mental state, but in order to have the mental state, you have to have the physical sure. capacity within your neurobiology to, to be able to stay in a place of acquiescence or uh, what you would call the zone, the creativity, you know, to be uncomfortable and then to choose differently. 
Otherwise, you choose your path. So, um, so what happens is, and this is part of where that yoga influence came in, was now we have good, good, good solid studies saying, you know, when, when we pay attention to proprioception and awareness in, in movement and breathing, meditation, all of those, we can, we can stick in a functional MRI and show you eight weeks later, you've changed the thickness of your insula, mm-hmm. you've downregulated your amygdala, you know, all those kind of things that we're mm-hmm. seeing. So those are, those are exercises in attention, exercises in proprioception and awareness, and they include posture and balance. And that's kind of what you read in the intro again about how the, our scopes of practice of, of physical rehab change, literally change our neurobiology, our neurophysiology, and out of that give us the adaptability or the, or the you know, Victor Frankl called it that space between the stimulus and the response. That, you know, there's, the environment stimulates us, I have to change my biomedical model, what's my response? Oh, fui, this stuff works, I know it, let me just keep doing it. Or, yeah, that's right, let me do some reading, let me get some new skills, let me do whatever. Um, and so the question is, how do we, how do we transform our profession then? Is a, is a, before we start transforming society, how are we going to transform our profession, yeah, right? That's a, that's a great question. Does everyone yeah. just need thicker insula then? Yeah, we need to, okay. we need to get, get we, to we the gym. We got it. It's over. It's over. We just get, figured it out. <laughs> get on an incline bench and start doing your insula presses, right? <laughs> exactly. Get the rational cognitive side of you to communicate better with the limbic system. And then and, that's it. And, and how do you do that? Sounds easy. Yeah, well, I, well, I mean, I guess, you know, d- does meditation play a part in this? It's huge, and, yeah. And, yeah. And so, and, and so what's, what, what I'm seeing and what we had to do in our doctoral work was we had, it was a, it's a transdisciplinary degree. So we read all sorts of stuff, evolutionary biology, organizational design, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of different things. And so um, when, you, when we step out of the physical therapy world and we start looking at the, the meditation studies and those kind of things, we see that, yeah, when, when I pay attention, when I practice attention, which is... Uh, is a physical and a mental exercise um, that actually changes this, my function and the the anatomy of my my nervous system. When, and, it, and, and, and it does. You know, I interviewed Sarah Lazar, Doctor Sarah Lazar. Sure. Yeah. From um, Harvard, and I got her because I Sharon Salzberg told me that I need to get in touch with her. And interview her because I interviewed Sharon, and then afterwards we were talking about the neuroscience stuff, and she said, "You have to, you have to get in touch with Sarah Lazar. She'll come on. She'll do it. She's great. You'll love her." Uh-huh. And and Sarah, Doctor Sarah Lazar, so for anyone listening, she is um, she has a lot of research into uh, meditation, and she just she's had a couple of kind of more high profile things published lately within the last couple of months I would say so if anyone wants to read some good research on this definitely uh, google Sarah Lazar and you'll get some great research on all the stuff a lot of the stuff that that Matt is talking about here so sorry I just wanted to throw that in there because I thought that was a good reference for people but um, it's exactly what you're saying yeah and what we can do is um, when I was writing that textbook 
I, I edited it and wrote a lot of the chapters on yeah. fostering creativity and rehab. Um, I used another Buddhist PhD, and that's Joan Halifax, Roshi Joan Halifax. She's out in Santa Fe. And uh, Joan asked and looked at, um, can you teach compassion? Because, and she has this embodied model of compassion, and I use that to kind of build the model that we're talking about today. And in that, she she addresses the same type of research, and she has a public access article, so I'll get you the link to that. Oh, and yeah, so that'd be great. So it's, an, it's a heuristic model of embodied compassion, it's where she asks, and she does a lot of end-of-life work, so she's, you know, so Tough. it's... Yeah. It's, it's essentially the same question of, you know, can I teach compassion? Can I teach creativity? Can I teach love? Can I, you know, any of those higher order human things that we do? Um, and so it has a great reference list for our readers so they can go back and get the foundational stuff. Oh, and cool. So, so out of that, Joan talks about, and this is kind of Buddhist language that keeps creeping into our research because now we talk about equanimity and uh, all those different types of words. Uh, from a scientific standpoint, um, you know, can I have equanimity when you tell me my biomedical model is broken? Yeah. That's why it's kind of, I was kind of drawing the question out of you because that is, that's the front we're, we're up against right now as far as transforming our own profession. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so in Jones, she talks about, she answers the question basically that no, you can't teach compassion, but you can prime the individual to have a compassionate response down the line, which is kind of interesting because, uh, yeah, I know you and Larry Benz do, you know, a regular show. Uh, which one is that? Let's plug oh, it. The Sips with Jared Lair and Care. <laughs> yeah. Yes we, just, we, yes. yes, we did. The last one we did was uh, back in a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So, so yeah. That, yeah. So, so Larry uh, has that program, Compassion and Caring, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and where I would, where I part split hairs with him is he calls it a non-clinical skill in the subtitle of the uh, or the description of the course, and I I would argue that it's the ultimate clinical skill, just to split hairs. But but that's that's uh, that model of embodied compassion, embodied creativity. Uh, that says there are six practices, six exercises that we can do that will prime us for compassion and creativity. All right. What are they? So the six are. They're easy to remember. And again, this is, this, will, this is all in this article. We're going to have a link for the readers so they can, they can go through this. But um, two A's. The first one is attentional. You do attention exercises. Like, so... so physical therapist saying, well, what am I going to teach that? I can't get everything else done. Well, what if you could actually make, invite the person to pay attention as they sat there and did their single leg curtsies, pay attention, pay attention, quit looking at the TV, pay attention, pay attention. Okay. I do that all the time, actually. Yeah, we bring them back. Yeah, I always tell people, even when you're doing this at home, don't have the TV on, don't be reading a book while you're doing it, don't be texting just kind of focus on on the movements that I'm teaching you to do. Right. So so attention is the first one. Okay. And we know and and what attention is as an exercise is 
limbic system gets distracted by what's that? What, what should we look at that? What's that? And the you know prefrontal cortex goes, well, we're really supposed to be doing this. <laughs> and, okay. and so every time we do that, we're building the insula. We, we're making a thicker insula because we're getting that executive control. Got it. And so, and, um, so the first A is attention. If you can't pay attention, you can't be compassionate and you can't you aren't going to be creative either because you can't stay focused on well, the issue. What about people with like ADHD or ADD? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't well, know. This might be beyond beyond the scope here, but I'm just thinking, you know, because those people, they're ca- categorized as people who really can't maintain attention outside right. of, you know, taking medication obviously helps. But Except they're, a lot of them have brilliant insights and are... Mm-hmm extremely creative in a lot of different aspects, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why in Joan's model, this is a uh, an interactive weave of these six. There, so okay. again, we want to see how our mind goes to attention. If I can't do attention, I can't get to here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, the second A is affective. So you do affective exercises. Now we're into the realm of the mindfulness exercise where can I sense what my emotions are right now? You know, are you engaged in what we're talking about? Am I going on too long about what we're talking about? You're watching the clock, taking notes. You know, um, so the ability to know how I feel. Do I feel nervous? Do I feel excited? That kind of thing. That affective reflection um, is trainable. It's in the literature. Again, Joan's got it all nicely cited. It's in the literature, and not only is it in the literature that I can train my own affective attunement, my ability to know what my internal state is, but when I do that, I become better at knowing what your affective state is. I become empathic. And again, good, solid evidence, and I think that's uh, you know, the reference you gave the readers earlier, and I'm blanking right now. On what, uh, Dr. Lazar? Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Lizard's work. Yeah. Okay, so now we start to see the bridging into that kind of work. Um, and if I can't pay attention, so watch how this goes. If I can't pay attention to my affect, then I can't change my effective skills, right? So I have to keep coming back and noticing how do I really feel. You know, the patient's going on, and then the cat died, and you're uh-huh. looking at your watch and going, oh, crap, this point. You know, I'm feeling nervous, so now I'm going to be abrupt, and I'm going to cut them off, and mm. I'm maybe missing exactly, sure. oh, this, you know, you, you lose that. And so, yeah. so the two A's play off of each other, attention, affect, affect, attention. Uh-huh. And the more I practice sensing how I feel, the better I get knowing how you feel. And the more I know how you feel, I know how I have a better, I'm priming myself to gain, she's so brilliant, God. insight, which is our next okay. exercise, <laughs> insight into the source of your suffering. If I can pay attention to your affective state, then I'm apt to gain some insight into why you're suffering on the presumption most rehab people are in the business to ease the suffering of others. We hope, hopefully. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so the, so the, the third one is insight. And that is when you pay attention, when, you've, when you're attending to your affect, your mood states, mm-hmm. how you feel, your interoception, um, Often what happens is you downregulate the limbic system and then you get more of the associative centers 
to begin the fire, which gives you a glimpse into, oh, that's it. She keeps going on about her cat because she's isolated, she's lonely, she's her pain is her social isolation. Lack of her, social engagement. And, right. And, yeah. you know, this takes me back to thinking about patient values. So I uh, had a conversation with Eric Kruger um, a couple of weeks ago on this very thing. And as physical therapists, instead of just setting the goals, well, she's going to be able to walk 10 feet in 10 days, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, looking at, well, what are the values? What's important to this patient? You know? Yeah. Like I have a patient who had, anyway, back pain with some radiculopathy, but, um, and I asked her, well, what's, what's meaningful to you? What is it that you're not doing that you really want to do? And she's like, I just want to travel. I'm a traveler. And it wasn't, wasn't, if I can just travel. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to be able to travel again. It's not like she didn't say, oh, I want to be able to walk one block. No, it was, I just want to be able to travel again. So that was what was so valuable to her and part of her value system. And so, uh, it sounds like, and we're only on three out of six. So I'm assuming, I don't know if that, maybe I jumped the gun. No, you did great because, because that's always the next question because our, our broken view of what evidence-based practice is, is that it's this predictable linear process of knowing what the right thing is to do and then we do it. And Eric does, I'd have the readers or the listeners go back and listen to Eric's because he does such a great job of, of bringing up that aspect of, you know, patient values, but how do you know what patient values? Well, you have to know how the patient feels. How do you know how the patient feels? The science says, if you don't know how you feel, you don't know how they feel. So, so, so that model is just, and then out of that, you have the space, you aren't in this hyper, you know, limbic arousal state where you can't get up to the, the finer levels of your neocortex to, you know, to connect the dots. And so, um, but that insight and attention and affect are all going to be influenced by what your intention is. Second eye. So we got insight, intention. So A-A-I-I, right? And so my intention, every time I step in to be with a client, my intention is to first note what my affective state is, calm myself down from whatever the last issue was. Which or can be whatever. very difficult and, right. and um, not, not to keep harping on Sharon Salzberg, but she has a great book. Um, I think it's uh, Happiness at Work. Right. Um, so if people have a chance to go out and read that or, or audio book it. Um, she has in there sort of, she calls them stealth meditations, right? you know, to kind of help ground you and be able to take you on to the next activity. And I, the one that I really like is, you know, obviously we're physical therapists, hopefully in between each patient, we're washing our hands, fingers crossed people are doing that (laughs) in between each patient. Um, so one of her stealth meditations is washing your hands for a minute. And really concentrate on where is the water falling? What does the soap feel like? What is So this is your sort of meditation of being in the moment. Right. And if you can do that in between patients, maybe you can help to downregulate your uh, nervous system a little bit, help ground you, and, and help to get you through the two A's before right. you go on to the so your attention and effectiveness 
before you go on to the next patient. So you don't go in and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was 10 minutes late and now I have to do this. And the patient's like, whoa, like back off, buddy. You know, I'm not telling this person anything. Uh Uh-uh, they shut down right away, don't they? Yeah, and so in that hand-washing meditation is a great one because then you get to check on your own affect, note it, okay? And as you practice it and thicken that insula, that's what the the science says. You can down-regulate quicker than somebody... Who hasn't practiced and in that you restate your intention so within the hand washing ritual my intention is first of all and this feels weird I'm gonna care for myself oh because <laughs> if I'm not just like you demonstrated in that if I'm in a bad state this this interaction this dance isn't going to happen so well so you, you first your intention is to care for yourself your second intention typically would then be in some form or whatever is personal for the person is how I want to be present in order to help this person alleviate their suffering, whatever that suffering is and whatever your particular profession is. But you're, you restate that intention so you don't just keep going headlong from the last patient to the next patient to the next patient. Right, yeah, so, so it puts that, so that hand washing is a great one to do. And, uh, and in the book I have like, 60 some different exercises mm-hmm. of lots of things we can do but um that moves us then in, in the only way you do that exercise is you have to remember you're in your body so that's why the water and the soap is such a great thing you get out of from behind your eyebrows and you start to feel your hands you start to feel the water and the soap and the mm-hmm. and so so this this the fifth uh activity is this embodiment we use our body. And so um, I'll send you a link because I, you know, only we nerds would get excited about this. But I'm heading to Hawaii for Friday for a vacation. That doesn't, I think anybody would be excited about that. But but look what I got for my uh, reading material. Oh, nice. And then what it is, is it says, how do you feel? An interoceptive moment with your neurobiological self. Who's the author of that? That's A.D. Bud Craig. That's a big book. It's a it's a nice but just out. Um, he's like a, functional. a coffee table book. Yeah, all I have to do is put my swimsuit in the bu- in the suitcase. Uh-huh. So I got lots of room. Uh-huh. But um, but he's a functional neuroanatomist here uh-huh. who just a couple years ago found these incredible thalamic maps that are very similar to our sensory motor cort- cortices, mm-hmm. and he talks about how all our emotional state back to our affective is is perceived through our body. So now we're back to physicalness, right? So can I feel my breath? Can I feel the dimension of my breath, where I'm breathing, those sorts of things. When we do that interoceptive practice, we're down there paying attention to our thalamic response. And uh, and then, so as we do such a practice, we then are able to parse, and again, this is, if anybody, you know, Lorimer's got his great little thing about, you know, the, the stimulus comes up and, it, you know, goes to the thalamus and then the parietal cortex, you know, he does yeah, yeah, yeah. all that dance, you know. So when we, I think what we're going to find in the research is when we start looking at these thalamic maps, we're going to see they change just like the sensory motor primary cortices do in, in what we know in rehab. And so it's an exercise to pay attention to our breath, to pay attention to our emotional state because we're tending to the thalamic process at that point. Um, and then the last E, so 
embodiment, and then the last E is enactment. Then you have to act, and there's the physical. We have to go out and act in the world. So can I sit down and can I be soft and can I pay attention to, you know, Joan going on and on about her, you know, chronic headaches and terrible work life and all that sort of thing? Can I, and then can I move with compassion and can I gain insight into her suffering? So we keep going back into that wheel, but it's so a constant it dance just keeps of all. flowing in and out. Yeah, it's a beautiful model uh-huh. that Joan's created. And, and it's all backed by good, deep, rich science. And so kind of what we get to is how do we then transform society? Well, again, it's, it's in, that, in that literature base that she has. And um, when we do these things, guess what happens? When we do these practices, we become a little more patient. We can become a little more tolerant. We are primed for additional insight to begin to solve some of all these problems we're, we're looking at. Um, we create deeper, uh, more meaningful relationships. And the other person is, has the experience of being deeply listened to and held. And in that, we're back to patient values because when we keep asking what does the patient want, what does mm-hmm. the patient want? Um, and so, the idea is transforming society is about first we have to do our own practice. We have to do our AA, our EE, our II. And when we do that, we change. We know through neuroplasticity, uh, because when we look at those studies, what's the thing that makes the rat change the fastest? Because that's our best literature right now. It's salience, it's interest. And now we're back to what exercise are we giving the patient? Well, if it's boring and not attached to anything they want to do, they're probably not going to do it. If they aren't going to do it, they aren't going to do the reps, the stimulus to, you know, to create the neurosynapses and, you know, all those kind of things. Um, And so how do we know what they're interested in? We have to have insight into what their emotional state is. And we only do that if we've got the stability to be okay in whatever their funky presentation is to us, you know, so back to Eric's work, you know, how do you know, uh, Eric Kruger's, you know, in that, that podcast a couple of weeks ago, it, if we don't do that dance and we haven't practiced that, then what really changes? Then we, what we do is your nervous system, of course, defaults to reaction and like, okay, let's get this TheraBand and work on this. Cause this is what I always do for this <laughs> condition kind of thing. Right. I feel safe. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I think when we talk about transforming society, we've got to, you know, it's amazing that the profession stepped up and said, this is what our, just like you said, yeah, this is the vision, which is freaking a lot of people out because it sounds way too big. But when we start to read out of our silo of physical therapy and we start to look at these other sciences and go, holy crap. And so one of the things I like to, uh, two years ago or three years ago, Two years ago in Boston at our yoga therapy conference, we had Herbert Benson, the the man who coined the term, Dr. Herbert Benson, the relaxation response. He's run Harvard's Mind Body Institute ever since. They have studies now that show if you pay attention to your breath, so you get yourself in a comfortable posture, hear the word posture, you pay attention to your breath going in and out, and you do that for 15 minutes every day, there's your dose, there's your intensity of exercise, 
He's got a study with an N of several thousand. That's not, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that demonstrates that when you take when you take novices and have them do this exercise, in eight weeks they can measure that. Um, you've changed the genomic expression in that person. Mm, the, the immune system genes get upregulated, the tumorogenesis, the other um, ones we would call negative get downregulated. So they take genomic samples before, they take them afterwards, they got a huge N, they got a, and he, he started his talk off by saying, when I started doing this work back in the early 70s and people would ask me, you know, in my conferences, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm going to do my, my mind-body stuff. He kind of muttered and, you know, mm. hope nobody heard what he said. And he goes, now I go, I do mind-body stuff and I got better data than you do. You know, because, and so this, this exercise of attention, of bringing the attention in to pay attention to your breath every time you get distracted, come back literally changes our genes and then when it changes our genes our regulation of our genes it also then creates the behavioral changes because then when we look at you know what are the behavioral signals of neuroplasticity it's salience frequency intensity every day 15 minutes and then you go back and go oh that's that's cool that's really new and then you go oh no patanjali wrote that in the yoga sutras you do your yoga practice every day because in your yoga, in real yoga, not gymnastics, jumping around yoga, in real yoga, you're going to attend to your emotional state, your uh, what your intention is. You, you set an intention before you step on the mat. So what what are we doing with patients? What patient, when you go home and you're going to take self-care, what are you going to, what's your intention as you, as you, you know, let's set an intention. What do you want to travel like your patient, you know? Mm-hmm. You want to, so what's your intention? My intention is to make it to, you know, Spain next spring. And so you set your intention in order to do that, then I need to gain some insight. So while I'm paying attention to breathing, when I bring my knee to my chest and exhaling, when I take it away, uh, slowing down the nervous system like that, all of a sudden I realize, well, shoot, you know, my cousin Bob, you know, is an amputee. He does it. Let me see how he does it. And now she's got an insight of she's going to get some resources that are going to complement your treatment that you as the therapist could have never predicted. But you primed her for that insight, which is creative. creative. Yeah. So so it's not directly do this to be creative, but in this embodied creative process, then it gives us adaptability in our environment. And I I think that's what we're all looking to do on personal levels, societal levels, but also within our professions. You know, we we know all this change is coming, all this science is different. How how are we going to be prepared to do that? Yeah. And, you know, we're almost out of time here, but I have to say, you know, judging the, the, APTA's website or vision of transforming society through movement and I can't think of through optimal movements. Uh, optimal movements, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's a it is a big statement and it's a good statement. But in my opinion, and and people will probably say I'm I'm wrong, but whatever. Um, This is. (laughs) Whatever. Watch your effective response to but, stepping you know, out and making a strong statement. Yeah. Whatever. I'm okay with it. I'm okay yeah. with people disagreeing. But um, this is the first time 
I feel like I have heard a good practice of getting there, a good practice of transforming society and beginning with transforming yourself, transforming the profession to then help society transform itself through optimal movement, through breath, through awareness or what have you. But this is the first time that I can think of that I've had a good concrete, and I don't want to use the word map, roadmap, because it's the, the wrong term, I think. Would you agree? I think it's the wrong term. Right. Yeah. I don't it's know what just, the term is. I don't know what the term is. Well, that's what's but, hard because in anything complex, you yeah. really can't hold it. You know, you kind of squeeze one part and it slips out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but it just seems to me like this, in, to me, this makes a whole lot of sense of how can you transform society. So if you start with yourself, with, with a lot of people, I, I know one of the, like you said, the... Um, intention is, you know, how, how am I going to care for myself? Then how am I going to, um, uh, be present to alleviate this person's suffering? I think a lot of people in the caring for professions, regardless of what that is, put themselves secondary to caring for the person in front of them. Exactly. And so I think that might be one of the biggest challenges or biggest sticking points to this whole transforming society bit right. is, yeah. is being able to care for yourself in order to more effectively care for those who are suffering. Right. And, that, and part of that, a small part of that is embedded in our paradigm of I'm the fixer, you're the broken, I will fix you. Yeah, and we don't want and to the, be... the shift is we both show up in this world both broken and whole. How do we how do we support each other? You know, and and, and able to do that. And and it's so I it makes me happy to hear you say that and at the same time I'm going, but I'm just telling you what everybody else has told me. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, this isn't Taylor's idea, this is the wisdom traditions just showing up and right. and but the beauty of that simplistic model because you can keep doing you got the e's and the i's and the a's and we are the second e in enactment movement mm -hmm. how do it so optimal movement means enactment mm -hmm. which is our interface with the environment so it's very much what physical therapy is um you know it's it's how do we interact optimally in our in our environment. So I, I'm, I'm excited. And, and another resource listeners might enjoy if this is kind of a, a new thing for them is uh, Peter Senge and uh, Jeff Jaworski and a couple other people wrote this book called Presence mm -hmm. back in 2004. Peter Senge is a senior lecturer at uh, MIT Sloan School of Management and he wrote The Fifth Discipline. So he's a, he's a dynamic systems thinker. Uh, but it's a but that book presence is about how you do this in organizations, institutions, and organizations. And he summarized my my favorite quote out of the book is: "Large systemic change comes from the local individual practice. That you don't you we are the system. You know, we are members of physical therapy. We're members of healthcare. We're members of you know U.S. healthcare." If we're going to change the system, you got to do your local practice, which is change your systems. And Joan's model is such a beautiful model of how do I prime myself to change? And it feathers right in with what we're getting so excited about in rehab about 
neuroplastic change and motor education and pain science and that sort of thing. So yeah. really exciting times. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> and, and this is, this was great. I mean, listen, I could go on for another hour here, but we'd have to probably split this sure. podcast into like yeah. four separate podcasts. But, no, that's fine. um, this, I really, I, I can, I can, I feel better about kind of what I do on a day to day basis based on this conversation. And I'm going to try and definitely be a little more mindful when I'm with my patients. Um, I think I'm pretty mindful, but, you know, I, I feel like, and, and I also have the luxury, I don't have one patient right after the other. So yeah. I see patients in their home, so I see them for an hour, and then I walk to the next patient, right? Yeah. So I have that time to, I'm not, I, don't, I never really feel that rushed unless I'm, you know, stuck in traffic or something. Um, but I'm definitely going to be looking at those six exercises uh, on a daily basis. I think it's actually I think it's kind of nice to just review them at the end of the day. Do you ever mm -hmm. do that? Do you kind of ever take take these six exercises or take what you did and sort of review it at the end of the day and then maybe see how that went and how you can change the next day? Right, and uh, I joke about it being our biopsychosocial spiritual dental floss. <laughs> you scrub the tartar off your teeth before you go to bed, mm -hmm. sit down, let your nervous system reacclimate through some kind of embodied practice, mm -hmm. which if you want to change your genomes, just follow Benson's practice of put your legs up, you know, generate a relaxation response and uh, watch your breath for 10 or 15 minutes. And it's like getting your little dental floss out and only you're doing it on your, your whole self, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's, yeah, we talk about postural dental floss. We talk about biopsychosocial, spiritual, spiritual dental, dental floss. floss. Who am I and what am I? What's my intention and how yep. do I want to? How do I want to move in the world? Yep, that's that's spirituality. Perfect <laughs> and a great way to end the interview. So thanks so much for coming on. If people want to learn more about you, get the textbook. Uh, obviously, if you're going to CSM, you can sign up for the pre-conference course, which is again transforming society through embodied creativity and that's a full day pre-conference course at the CSM 2016 in Anaheim and if people want to get the book Fostering Creativity and Rehabilitation or get in touch with you how can they do that? Uh, my website's easiest MatthewJTaylor.com and the textbook's expensive it's a small publisher so I'm creating an online course that'll be available by the early November too so if people Great. can't get to CSM there's another way to to do it and and kind of the only for my my intention and my insight and so my affect feels okay and I'm important in the world is people have questions just I give stuff away I do that all the time so yeah I'll respond if they they drop great. me a note all right great well thank you so much for coming on this was a great talk um, and everyone thank you so much for listening have a great week and stay healthy wealthy and smart <laughs>